Our reading is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When you see your, your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the, of the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Thank you, Stephen. Good morning. Good morning. It's uh, my pleasure to bring the word to you again this morning. Uh, you may be thinking this is a week late of, of Mother's Day. Uh, I would say definitely not. I don't want to say the things today. Uh, I don't want to say the thing on Mother's Day that I'm going to be saying today. So this is uh, maybe not our intention, um, but God was kind to me. Um, so with that, let's, uh, let's get into today. Uh, the title of today's sermon is True Beauty. We are in First Peter chapter 3, 1 through 6. We're continuing our journey through First Peter, and we're actually about to draw this uh, current mini-series to a close. Uh, but we are in chapter 3, so we've been moving. Um, I want to draw our attention today to kind of the way that I kicked off this little mini-series uh, a little while ago. This is before Easter. But Matt was uh, kind of bringing it up again two weeks ago. And, and that's this. When we are, are into this idea of submission and we're into this idea of authority and the idea of serving by submission, what does it look like for us to live holy lives in and amongst the lost in this world, we have to start with that, that first picture that we see. And that is simply this. There is a war of desire that is fought on the turf of your heart. It's fought for control of your soul. This, the challenge of this series has been every week the completeness with which the Word is attacking our hearts, our lives, that everything belongs to him that there is a war happening in every situation and every location and every meeting and every circumstance and every statement that you say and especially in every relationship that you have this war is fought on the turf of your heart for control of your soul and and for matt two weeks ago that everything relates to god the struggle to see how everything relates to god Last week when we were talking about how in all of the situations that we are either are, are suffering in, whether we brought it on ourselves or, while, or other people bring it to us, everything is in submission to God. And so that is a, a huge call and huge challenge of this entire series has been that everything relates to God. And so as we talk about this today, the, the frequency with which we have to attack this, the, the frequency with which we have to address this and be aware is every moment of our lives. That's huge. That's nearly impossible, right? It's part of the point. 
And so right now, there's a war of desire in my own heart that's raging, and I would be a fool to ignore it. But our role that we're going to see, no matter what, what seat you occupy, your role as a believer is to be people who are transformed by His glory and are transforming others to His glory. Right? And today we have a fantastic, fantastic battle plan for that very thing today. Right? Of being people that are transformed by His glory and transforming others to His glory. It's explicit today. And I think that's a, a big treasure for us. So with that, our passage today, we're going to be doing battle. I usually get on Matt for over-caveating. Um, we, we, we talk to each other about preaching. We say, do you, do you got something to say, preacher, right? And every time I'm preaching, it's Sunday morning, he's up here and he's like, you ready to go? I'm like, no. Can you take it? <laughs> like, it's a little late for that question. Um, you got something to say? Well, then preach, preacher, right? So I usually get on him about that. But I want to get, um, you know, out of the way as much as I can and get the preacher out of the way so that you can see the text. But I have a little fear of man, or particularly one man today, um, going on. So let me lead with this, okay? I want to care for you, ladies, all right, and well, as best I can, all right? I want to hold you up so that you can see the beauty of the Lord. That, that is my, my goal today. I want to feed you something tasty that's going to lead you to treasure the Word and treasure Jesus away from what the world has to show you that, that He is better than the world. And with that, I'm going to try to be careful, okay, in what I say. But I, I cannot nuance every, every piece of this passage, all right? I'm not capable to see every circumstance, and I unfortunately also don't have time uh, to nuance every piece of this passage. You see, the problem with this passage is that this speaks to a core foundational identity, how and why did God create us, right? From our, from our new, city, or new City Catechism, God created us male and female to glorify Him, right? And so th this speaks to a very foundational aspect of our identity and who we are. We are male and female. And so I'm going to try to preach, preacher. This is a touchy piece. And because it's so foundational and core, there are so many different ways that it can manifest, Right? And so in that, I can't nuance every piece of that. So we're going to let the text speak for the text today, all right? So with that, let's pray, and then we will dive into this together. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is clear. And Father, you, that your word can be complicated but clear. It, it, it can be detailed yet simple. And so, Father, as we dive into this text today, I pray that you would help us see the simplicity of what you've called us to be, just people that love you and glorify you in all that they do. But, Father, I pray that you would also challenge us in very specific ways today to see the truth of the text and how we are not measuring up to that and to trust Jesus. And by repentance, Father, that we would walk in faith. And, Father, today is not simply for our wives particularly. It is for all of us. You've created us male and female to glorify you. Let us see today what we are called to, if we are wives particularly. And Father, let us see how we can be exhorters in Christ if we are not a wife today. Father, let us continue to build each other up on the cornerstone of your son. We pray in his name. Amen. But ladies, let me, let me start with a question as I'd like to do. You know that. What is it about you, ladies, all ladies, not just wives, ladies, that makes you distinctly feminine. 
what is it about you, what would you say, that makes you distinctly feminine? Husbands, particularly. What would you say about your wife that is distinctly feminine? Now, to be clear, this passage is addressed to wives. But we know from Scripture that being married is not one of the things that makes you fully male or female, right? So whether you're married or not, ladies, what is it about you that makes you distinctly feminine? See, there's a great danger in the church that if we were to list what we appreciate or love most about our spouses, that we would list good, general, Christian virtues. But if we were to read them independently of knowing who they refer to, if I were just to collect the lists of all of these and read them out loud, we wouldn't often be able to tell if they talked about the husband or the wife, the male or the female. You might have a list that says something like this, good with the kids, kind, works hard, loves me, sacrificial, takes time to help out, amazing cook, is gracious. What in there is distinctly male? What in there is distinctly female? I mean, not to be vulgar, but is it just your lady parts? Because in this world, those are apparently negotiable. Is it just your appearance? Because in this world, it's being stolen by men who can do it better. Two of the top five beauty gurus on YouTube, which is where your kids get most of their information, are trans men. They can do it better. For those of you listening to the podcast, that was in quotes. Is it just the things you do? Caring for the house, raising the kids. Because in this culture, it's being done by men. Usually not better. We'll, we'll give you that one, all right? But it's being done by men. So what is it that makes you precious? What is it that makes you beautiful? What is it that makes you a woman? We've got to think about these things because these questions are core markers of identity. How do you think about yourself? And as we've talked about in the past in regards to identity specifically, if we don't actively search the scriptures and recognize who we are supposed to be, then we're going to become anything that comes to us. And so when it comes to raising your kids, how are you going to teach boys to be masculine and girls to be feminine? I mean, this is a tall order for me particularly. How do I, as a father, raise four girls to be ladies? How do I show them how I am rightly different? I think Peter tells us what it means to be feminine today. As you leave today, I want you to faithfully chase after these things. There's going to be plenty of application. Much of it is implicit because we're talking about your character, who you are. The first thing I want you to see today is submission leads to life. Submission leads to life. There's the S word if you'd like to get off the train. I suppose now might be the time. What does our passage say for us today? Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, out the gate, I, I, as we read Scripture, we have to be careful to pay attention to the words that are used, right? And I'm not doing that to try to caveat the S word. We're not going to talk about that for a good minute. 
look at what he's, he's talking about. When you see likewise, that's an important phrase because in this particular context, it can relate to four different things, right? Now, Peter is, is not the most educated of the apostles, all right? He's not a Paul. And so maybe his writing is not always as precise as Paul's is, right? So what does the likewise refer to? I think in this particular case, it could be really heavy coming off the example of Christ, right? And in fact, with, the, with, with men, we see Paul saying, we love your wife like Christ loved the church, right? That's explicit. Thanks, Paul. When we're talking about here, what is the likewise referring to? It actually jumps all the way up to verse 18. It's modifying subject, right? Well, in verse 18, it says servants, right? Be subject to your masters. <laughs> whoa, whoa. Right, if, I'm, if I'm a lady right now, I'm thinking, like servants, I'm supposed to be subject to men? Two things, no. Right? No, you're not a servant, you're a wife. The position dictates the function, right? Those are two entirely different positions. Two entirely different, different orders, right? Two entirely different things. And so the position dictates the function, the verb dictates the posture, be subject. The posture. We're going to hit that in just a second. And then two, not all men. Read carefully. Likewise to who? To your own husband. None of you wives in here owe submission to me in a wifely role. I am not your husband. You do owe submission to me in a Hebrews 13, 17 because I'm your under-shepherd. And that's an entirely different role than being your husband, right? And so just as you are not servants, I am not your husband. I'm your under-shepherd. It is different, right? So we talk about being subject, right? The posture of it. And I say, whoa, 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 again. So I'm not as good as my husband. I'm supposed to be subject under him. He's more important. He's smarter. I mean, have you met my husband? He's, he's better than me? Is that what you're going for? Two things again. No. <laughs> One, we believe, and by we, I mean the historic Christian faith on which we stand on 2,000 years of some better than others, <laughs> rather than 50 years of cultural zeitgeist, right? This is not the flavor of the month for the church, for the Christian church. This is 2,000 years that we have been believing this. And so I say we, we believe that men and women are created equal in dignity. At the foot of the cross, we are equal. That is clear. That is absolutely clear. Submission to authority is often consistent with equality and importance, dignity and honor. If you don't believe me, just look at, the, at, at your Bible. Jesus was subject both to his parents and to God the Father. And Christians are highly honored in God's sight, are still commanded to be subject to unbelieving government authorities and masters. Still. And so the command to wives to be subject to their husbands should never be taken to imply inferior personhood or spirituality or lesser importance. Believe me, I've met your husbands. Indeed, Peter affirms just the opposite. Just the opposite. He's going to say next week in verse 7, Wives are joint heirs of the grace of life. Catch that. You are not less than. That's not what be subject means. And two, I want you to see that we are created for distinct 
roles. And that's where I get back to that question. What is it that makes you distinctly feminine? This type of distinct submission, I think, is one of them. You see, when we think about this, we see four different things. One for each, or two for each, rather. Male and female. The character and distinctives of what it is to be male and then female. The identity of what that is. And then we're going to talk about how, right? How do they live that out? There's four different aspects. And when we're talking about women today, our passage speaks primarily to the first aspect, that identity or, or character of that woman, not man, woman, before the cross. But it frames it in the second aspect, the distinct role of that woman, not man, in their walk. So we're going to talk mostly about the character of that, but it's framed inside the distinctive of what it means to walk as a woman. Now, before we get into what is submission, we need to talk about what it's not. And part of the, of the privilege of the pulpit is to, is to proclaim truth, but also to disparage against error. And one of the primary topics of conversation on where this passage can be taken a different direction is right around this idea of be subject to, because a lot of people want to understand it to mean be thoughtful and considerate, act in love toward another, one another, right? That changes the meaning of the passage. It says be subject to. We're going to interpret that into being thoughtful and considerate, acting in love. That changes enormously the meaning of the passage. Not that these things are necessarily wrong to do. Certainly the scriptures speak to that in many other cases. But that's not what Peter's after here. It's not what he's saying. What is he saying? He's saying that the way this is supposed to be is a submission to, an to authority. It is not a legitimate meaning for the terms to just say be thoughtful and consider act in love. You see, if we do that, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament. The same word is used elsewhere in the New Testament of the submission of Jesus to the authority of his parents. Well, I guess it could be interpreted the other way there, right? Well, Jesus, be, be thoughtful and considerate towards your parents. Act in love. Okay. What about like of demons being subject to the disciples? And Luke ten seventeen. Clearly the meaning act in love, be considerate cannot fit here, right? Of citizens being subject to government authorities. Romans 13, 1 and 5. Of the universe being subject to Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 27. Ephesians 1, 22. Of unseen spiritual powers being subject to Christ. His rulers are the power of the prince of the air, right? And the principalities. Are they supposed to act in love and be considerate to Jesus? Of Christ being subject to God the Father. Of church members being subject to church leaders. Of wives being subject to their husbands in Colossians 3.18, Titus 2.5, 1 Peter 3.5, where we are today, and Ephesians 5.22 and 24. Of the church being subject to Christ, of servants being subject to their masters, and of Christians being subject to God. None of these relationships is ever reversed. Husbands are never told to be subject to wives, nor the government to citizens, nor masters to servants, or the disciples to demons. It's not what he's saying. We don't have the freedom to take what he's saying and make it mean what we want it to mean. 
Now, that defense comes from Wayne Grudem, who has an award named after him for complementarian living. I think it's clear where we stand as a church. I believe it is the historic confession of the church as well. And so it is not that. What is it? What is this submission? Well, it's quite beautiful, to be frank. I think it is quite beautiful. You see, both subject or be subject and, and submission are loaded words in this culture. And without careful definition, they're not outrightly helpful, especially to the lost around you. But as is my privilege in a room full of saints built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, I'm going to use his words for us, right? But they still need to be defined. So what do we mean by submission or being subject? We're talking about an attitude of submission to a husband's authority that's reflected in numerous words and actions each day that reflect deference to his leadership and an acknowledgement of his final responsibility after discussion has occurred where possible to make decisions affecting the whole family. I'll read it again. An attitude of submission to a husband's authority is reflected in numerous words and actions each day, the whole life, remember, which reflect deference to his leadership and an acknowledgement of his final responsibility to make decisions affecting the whole family. It's a posture, a posture specifically of seeking, a posture of seeking. It's a disposition to follow authority and an inclination to yield to its leadership. Submission is seeking the will of those in authority over you. Now, that doesn't sit well with most of us for a reason. We're going to talk about that shortly. But recognize what it is and what it is not, right? What it is is a posture, a posture of seeking. And when we're talking about this whole life, that everything relates to God, then we will see that in every relationship, particularly, i.e., here with your husband, Every situation with them involves a posture, a posture of seeking. It is not following commands. If your husband commands you, I would like to have words, all right? Please let me know. But it is following requests, suggestions, even wisdom. Now, I need to make an aside. Men, you can sit up and pay attention now. This is important, all right? This is an important aspect here, all right? This should make you careful in how you speak. Knowing that this is the truth of Scripture, this should make you very careful in how you speak. And I want to frame it in the context of children. With my kids, I have to be careful about the requests that I make, the suggestions that I make, and the wisdom that I offer. Why? Because if I ask them to do something, not a command, I don't think that commanding is necessary. Do I have the right to? Sure. Does your husband have the right to to you? Sure. Is it always icky and sticky? Yes, that's not the, that's not the deference that we see in Scripture. But if I make a request to my kids and they tell me no, I have just provided them an opportunity to sin. And so if I do that frivolously and especially selfishly, I am creating lots of heat, as we talk about in our counseling language. Lots of heat in their lives that's going to expose something. Now, are they still responsible for how they respond? Yes. Am I responsible for fathers do not provoke your children to sin? Yeah, right? 
And so there's this balance, particularly when we wield authority in any manner and in any relationship, we've got to be thinking as authorities, what is best for those that is under me? Now, the problem is that we can be not careful in how we speak. When we talk about the family, men, husbands particularly, you're a son, like S-U-N. Lots of heat can come off you. Lots of heat can come off you, right? And so for your wives, your requests should not be selfish. You'll put her in a tough position. It's unnecessary heat in her life. It is unnecessary heat. If you're going to be selfish, just name it. Honey, will you do me a favor? I don't want to get up. Will you please do this? Just name it, right? It's an opportunity then for her to say, no, you lazy butt, get up, right? Or say, absolutely, honey, I would love to care for you in this way. But don't put her in a weird spot where like, hey, do this. You don't have that right. She's not your servant. Just name it. So, listen, when men, I'm going to close with this with you. When you, not commands, but when we're talking about that, that area of like requests and suggestions and giving wisdom, you must always frame it in the convictions of Scripture. You have got to qualify everything that you ask your wife and your children to do with convictions from Scripture. Now, we're going to talk about, about how this relates together in a minute. But men, it has got to be qualified from Scripture. If you are asking your wife to do something and it's not going to result in her flourishing, you do it. If you're going to suggest wisdom and give your opinion, if it's not from the Scriptures, don't give it. Now, my wife typically says, okay, because I think at this point she knows that my convictions in those things come from Scripture. And I, she probably just doesn't want to hear me be a windbag and give them all out, right? We have to come with convictions from Scripture. And so when I talk about the, the plans for our family, when I talk about the things that I think that we should do, it's coming from somewhere. And ideally it's coming from the Spirit, right? If it comes from the flesh, then I am sinning and I'm going to lead my family to sin. So, with that aside, let's hop, let's, let's hop back here. We're not talking about following commands. We're talking about this posture, right? This posture. And so this posture lets you see his counsel as valuable, right? I try to only give counsel in any case that I am convicted by Scripture. Men, you, you should do likewise. This attitude that we want to see in this posture of submission is an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish in the relationship when you are passive and I have to make sure that the family works. This is John Piper's. You see, what I think is fascinating about this idea of submission is that this posture of submission we're talking about demands intent. You have to be intentional in order to be submissive. It doesn't just happen. I think that's fascinating because I have to practice this too, right? Now, again, the style is distinct. It's different. But it's important that we remember this distinction. But submission is not doormatting. It's not passive. It's active. It's active. And so this submission that you are called to is to seek specifically, seek the will of those in authority over you. 
when we think about this past weekend, how many words and actions did you have this weekend that reflect this to your husband? The conversations and words that you have this past weekend, how many of them reflect this seeking the will to your husband? Do you know what his plan is for your family? This needs so much development, but I don't have time to define that. Do you know the plans he has for your family, where he's leading you? As you think about this coming week, what's on your agenda this week? Have you sought direction on those things? Have you sought the will of him? So listen, as a staff member here at church, um, as elders, Greg, Matt, and I are all equal. Greg and I choose to submit to Matt in uh, areas of vision, particularly as the church goes. We don't think it's helpful for us to have three different visions. Um, So God has gifted him in that, and we willingly submit to him. But on all matters there, we are equal. But in the office, when I am a staff person carrying out ministry, I submit to him, right? I flourish when he takes initiative to let me know what we need to do as a church, right? But at the end of time, when I am judged on my faithfulness as a worker, I cannot blame lack of productivity on Matt. I can't say Matt didn't tell me everything that I needed to do. I can't accuse him and say that he didn't tell me the exact path of which to go. You see, it's my responsibility to seek. And it's here that I get to flourish, right? So Matt doesn't dictate to me every action. He gives a vision centered in conviction, and then I'm free. (laughs) I'm free to develop ministry. I'm free to create steps and plans and and how to bring people along in leadership. I'm free to schedule. I'm free to to work. And so this, this idea of submission is active. I am most faithful when I go to him and ask for direction. Is it his responsibility to come to me and provide it? Yes. Does that excuse me? No. What I want you to see, ladies, is I know in my own life, it's not just your man, it's men. We struggle to lead. That's part of the garden. That's what we're talking about here. But we cannot blame all of it on the husband. Does the husband bear ultimate authority for the family? Yes. Will God judge him rightly as such? Yes. But ladies, it's your role too to seek. It's active submission. You don't get to sit and wait for him or say, well, he's not leading. He's not leading out. How do I do this? You seek it. Now, guess what? As you seek, right, as you seek direction, it helps your authority. It helps them. I know that it helps Matt when I ask this. It brings things to his attention that he maybe missed or hasn't thought about lately, and then he is able to give direction. And so it's a balance of responsibility. There's distinction in roles. Now, in this pursuit of seeking, you're going to help your husband flourish. Why? Well, in some cases, you're going to be a constant pressure to him to lead. I want to caveat that against nagging. 
Uh, we're going to see in the text particularly how that works. It works by action, not words, right? So that being said, um, lest we dive into Proverbs, um, push in that way. It helps give momentum. It shows that you trust him. It shows that you desire it, that you respect him. And all of those things are motivating to men. Trust me, it will help push. And then he will lead better, and then you will be able to follow easier. And then he will continue to lead better, and you'll be able to follow easier. That's what we call flourishing, right? Distinct in roles, equal in dignity. So, one piece of this that I want to talk about in this pursuit is that you are submitting under him. You're seeking his will and direction and guidance and care and provision and wisdom, all of these things. You are not getting your spiritual strength from him. You are not getting your personal spiritual strength primarily through your husband. All right? That's not what this text is saying. Listen, as a husband, I can't bear that. It will crush me, right? Now listen, I love my kids. I love my wife. But do you know that I've never been able to hug them? Like actually full-on hug them, right? You guys have seen Shrek? If I fully hug my children as an ogre, I'm going to turn them into jelly, right? I've never been able to give my kids a full hug with all my strength to express my, right? Why? I'll break them. I can't even do that with my wife. I can do that with some men, but it doesn't mean as much. Trust me, all right? (laughs) But I've never been able to do that. I will crush them. They can't bear the force of my love. I can't bear the force, the weight of what Jess, my wife, needs. She needs Jesus. She needs Jesus. I can't bear the weight of what she needs. And so what this text shows us is that when a husband's spiritual leadership is lacking, when he's faithful, it doesn't matter across the board. A Christian wife is not bereft of strength. She gets it from Jesus. So if you want to flourish, follow God's way. Seek, ask, pray, trust. And I think that this is a sticky point when we're talking about trust. Let me give you one more thing that submission is not. Submission is not persuasion. It's not persuasion. And this is tough, but I think that this is a key to this whole thing. Specifically to motive. When we talk about motive, why are you submitting? This is a huge piece. If you have to be persuaded, listen to me, everyone, not just wives. If you have to be persuaded, you are not submitting. You're just right. You've agreed that whatever the course of action is right, you've been persuaded. And so your following is not based on trust. It's not based on faith. It's based on knowledge that you are right. It doesn't matter if you're at work, at church, under your elders, or at home. It becomes a battle of wits and a battle of wills. And this is not unity. It's not trust. And it's not safe. It's not a safe place. See, submission leaves room for wisdom from both parties. From both parties. But it's a trusting submission, not a persuasion to reason. It's not a persuasion to reason. 
So let me, let me be clear. Men, should you try to be persuasive to your wives? Absolutely. That's called caring for them. Ladies, does he have to persuade you that he's right? No. No. See, the Bible is, is fraught with examples of issues for this, right? Let's just jump into the OT for a minute. Moses, right, comes home. Honey, a burning bush told me. Are you sure that it was God that you heard, hon? Because I'm not convinced, right? What happens in that case? Can't be persuaded. David shows up right on the field of battle. And he goes, yeah, with a rock. I'm just going to sling it at his forehead. See what happens. Jesus shows up, right? Says to Peter, as we've talked about several times the past month, Jesus shows up, I'm the Messiah, the deliverer, the conqueror, the bringer of the new kingdom, and they're going to kill me. And so for some connection to the end of our passage, let's go back to Abram, right? Abram shows up in the tent, comes back from a time out and says to Sarai, you know how I just changed my name? I'm Abraham now, not Abram, right? I'm going to change your name too. I'm going to call you Sarah now, right? And oh, you're going to have a kid. Sound good? God told me, don't worry, God told me this. And while you're at it, can you round up all the men in the house? I know I'm 99. All the men in the house, we've we got to circumcise everyone. It's not persuasion, right? There are so many examples of the things that God calls us to do that we can't persuade you to. No one's going to be persuaded by any argument there, shy of this is what the Lord commands. In fact, Isaac's name is <laughs> laughter, right? Sarah laughs. Abraham laughs. It doesn't have to make sense all the time. It's trusting joyfully. Submission is trusting joyfully. Do it with joy. What's one of the purposes of this submission? Look back at our text. The purpose of the submission in one case is to win lost souls to life. To be transformed by the glory of God and to transform the lives of others. Grudging, grumbling submission is unholy. It is selfish manipulation and self-righteousness. It's ugly. When your kid obeys you just because you're making them, is that beautiful? No. Is it necessary in that particular case? Yes, it's train your kids. But is it ugly? Yeah. It is not pretty. When your children obey you because they trust you, it's a beautiful picture. Ladies, when you obey joyfully, when you follow wisdom joyfully, when you seek the Lord through your husband, you are Beautiful. That behavior is beautiful. It's compelling. It's convincing. I mean, when you feel you've not been heard, what do you normally do? Talk louder, right? Hear me this way. I don't. I feel like you're not hearing me, right? And more words come. What does this text tell us? Without words. And so, to know this should increase prayer, both for grace to live rightly and for God's working in the husband's heart. Now this text gets wrongly framed in the fact that this is primarily for women of unbelievers. That's not what the text says. Read carefully, right? 
It says, and even if, as in that's the exception. Even if, right? Some do not obey. That is an exception clause. This is the general practice of the Christian church. I need to be one to Jesus every day. And when my wife has this kind of beauty, it's compelling. I need to be reminded daily of my identity. And my wife is my helpmate in the most beautiful way when she does this. And so we see verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. If it's not clear already, your submission is pure, which means you're never asked to submit to sin. I feel like it should be obvious, but I want to be clear. So think about how powerful this is, right? That a soul could be won by faithful living. A soul could be redeemed, could be won by faithful living. Why would it work this way? Wayne Grudem says that the attractiveness of a wife's submission or submissive behavior, even to an unbelieving husband, suggests that God has inscribed the rightness and the beauty of role distinctions in marriage on the hearts of all mankind. Such role distinctions include male headship or, and leadership in the family and female acceptance of and responsiveness to that leadership. And so the unbelieving husband sees this behavior in deep down, right, within. They, they perceive the beauty of it. Why? Because God has instilled that in man. And within his heart, there's this witness that this is right. This is how God intended men and women to relate as husband and wife. And so he concludes then that the gospel which his wife believes must be true as well. And so submission leads to life for you and for him. Submission leads to life. So now, eight words in and halfway through the time, let's continue on. That's the framing in which it is. Submission leads to life. Now, what does it mean to be feminine beyond that specific distinctive action of submission? The beauty of Jesus is your beauty. The beauty of Jesus is your beauty. Verse 3, this is true beauty. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. And so the focus shifts now on, onto the wife's beauty, which consists not in external, visible things which perish, but in unseen spiritual realities which are eternal. You're eternal. Now, I'll admit, and I experienced this again back in our, our ladies, our women's conference a couple months ago, that this beauty aspect is a, a little bit of a difficult one for me to come after, uh, mostly from a lack of pressure in my own life. But in thinking about this and praying about it and trying to how to best care for you and understanding this, uh, I found that I do share <laughs> this thing in, in many regards. There has always been pressure on me, particularly in high school, a, a longer ago time than I thought it was, um, to, not be, to not be fat, right? To, to look good, to be strong. Um, and so I generally avoided that, that culture of particularly clothing as much as I could. I just did not care 
Um, I wore uh, tie-dye shirts with roller coaster logos on it because that's just how we rolled. We rode roller coasters. Um, I, I really didn't care. Um, I avoided it as much as I could, and I used to very much judge anyone. I, I don't know if you remember this brand. Tommy Hilfiger um, was a big thing back then. I don't know if they still exist. Or Abercrombie, right? And, I, and I, honestly, <laughs> to some degree, I still judge your Patagonias or Forever 21 or Android smartphones. Um, that's really more where I land now is in tech. Uh, but there's still, even now, a pressure for me as an elder uh, to look good in some case, right? I need to care for my body. I need to, to look the part, right, to be persuasive. Now, I can only shop at about two and a half stores uh, that fit me, so I don't get a whole lot of say in fashion. And generally, I subscribe to the Steve Jobs method of uh, jeans and a black shirt. Uh, that's how I roll. I don't have to think about it. I have one type of sock. I just <laughs> reach in there, and they all match. It's fantastic. You should try it. Um, I don't have to think very much in the morning until I get to my coffee, and I'm good, right? One soap, one type of, uh, of, of sock. I usually only wear one type of shoes for a year. Um, and then if it's hot and I'm not preaching, um, shorts. If it's hot and I'm preaching or it's cold, jeans, and then some sort of black shirt. That's me. Now, I do my hair. Um, I've been experimenting with this long hair thing, and I'm not sold. Uh, but uh, there's this kind of pressure. It's small. I will never <laughs> know the pressure that women feel on image. I, I don't, I, and I will not. Uh, my heart weeps for you at, at the standard of which our culture speaks into your value based on what you look. I think it is absolutely shameful, and, and I hate it. And let me tell you, don't chase that stuff. Just don't. That, that's not who you are. Even if you've got it, it doesn't satisfy. But guess what? It's unattainable. As one who uses Photoshop, it's unattainable. You cannot make it happen. It doesn't last. You can craft the perfect image of what you want to look like. And some of you older ladies, you're still beautiful. But you tried that before, right? And it's gone the way of MySpace. You don't know what MySpace is? Exactly. That's my point. It's gone. It's gone. Instagram, for, for the rest of us, it's not eternal. It's not. Your looks are not eternal. Your clothes. You can make fun of my Steve Jobs thing. We're all going to be wearing the same thing in heaven, all right? You put it on every day. We're all going to be wearing the same thing. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. Now listen, I, this isn't a prohibition against braids or jewelry, because if it was... It'd also be a prohibition against clothes. Um, no one pushes that. That's not what we're going for here. It says against clothes. So don't be silly, all right? Let, let's read deeper. Your adorning, Peter tells us, should be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Your husband, all right, generally, I think the scriptures give some words against sweatpants life, uh, but generally doesn't care what you look like, all right? You are beautiful to him now and forever because you are flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. We are one flesh together with our spouses, a mystery, right? And we're commanded as the scriptures to love you as our own bodies, it doesn't matter what you look like. 
imperishable here that we're talking about is something that doesn't fade. And not only does it not fade, it lasts. It lives forever. And this New Testament consistently uses it to speak of heavenly realities, things that are not going to fade away with the passing of this present world. And so the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit will last for eternity. In contrast to the fleeting beauty of jewelry and clothing, your fashions don't even last. Why chase those things? When we look at this text, it's telling us that the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. This, this adjective of gentle only happens three other times in the New Testament, but two of those times refer to Christ. But we also have this other word in the New Testament that's very similar, just in gentleness or meekness, right? Gentleness and meekness is used much more frequently. And it means this, not insistent on one's own rights. Not pushy, not selfishly assertive, not demanding one's own way. What does that sound like? Submission. Submission. This is huge, right? This is huge with submission, with posture, with attitude, motive, all of these things. And so when we're talking about this gentleness, this meekness, this quietness, this seeking for beauty in those things, do you spend as much time, effort, and money on this as you do your morning routine, your cosmetics, your appointments? Does your conversation with your husband look like insisting on your own rights? being heard, asserting yourself, demanding your own way. Is he going to hear you roar? There's something dissatisfying to us when God calls us to meekness, right? When we hear these commands to meekness, I think no matter how sanctified we are, there's something just disappointing, dissatisfying to us when God calls us to meekness, right? To the point of the song Roar by Katy Perry, we want to be a champion, a tiger, a fighter, right? We want to be fierce, our culture would say on Pinterest. Ladies want to be fierce, to command their own, to be champions. But what is this? This is the garden. <laughs> this is the curse that we talked about last week. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so, God's call to us and Peter here is that it's a reversal of this curse. It's a reversal of the curse. We, we talked last week about how that curse has been lifted, right? As he was put up on the tree, the curse has been lifted. And so now here, we have this call to a reversal of the curse, a reversal of the garden. Listen, you can spend your life being fierce, a woman of women, uh, a woman of men even, Right? But at the end of the day, will this be you? Do you want to be loved by a real man? Do you want to be precious to the Father? Because those are two different lives. They're two different lives. A woman of God is called to gentleness. It's called to meekness. called to humility. These things. 
And that is attractive to men. That's attractive to men of God particularly. But even more importantly, is that it's something that is in God's sight. It's very precious. Your colleagues, coworkers, clients, friends, family, they can all see you as fierce. You can be a champion, a tiger, a fighter. You can be all that. Well, God calls you to humility, the gentleness. Now listen, I have four girls, and I don't want them to be doormats. I want them to be successful. I want them to flourish. I want to raise them to be strong, courageous, all of these things. But where are those things found? Where are they framed in? Where do they experience safety? Where will they actually flourish? Under the hand of a mighty God. Under the hand of a mighty God who has called them to distinctly be gentle. Call them to distinctly be quiet. That if they are married, to be submissive to their husband. And those things, to me, are special. But I don't matter. (laughs) Because in God's sight, it's very precious. And so listen, quiet confidence in God, your fierce lion of Judah, you're not tiger but a lion, produces in a woman the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. But it also enables her to submit to her husband's authority without fear that it will ultimately be harmful to her well-being or her personhood. That's courage. That's courage. I'm not saying you can't take the marketplace by storm. I'm not saying you can't be successful in even some of the ways that the world says that you can or should be successful. What I am saying is that when it comes to your character, what makes you distinctly feminine and not like the rest of the world and not like men, trust me, you don't want to be like us, you are beautiful in this fashion. And anything else, you're a fake. And so for us, Peter gives us a perfect example in Sarah. Sarah became the mother of all God's people in the Old Covenant, right? Even though there had been many times in which following Abraham had meant trusting God in uncertain, unpleasant, and even dangerous situations, even when Abraham was selfish and self-preserving rather than caring for those that are under him and laying down his life. The text tells us that let nothing terrify you It's just another way in which faith finds expression. A woman with a gentle and quiet spirit who continues hoping in God will not be terrified by circumstances or by an unbelieving or even a disobedient husband. That's fierceness. That's courage. Because our world says run away. Our world says get out of that marriage. Our world says, be your own woman. What's interesting here is that Sarah gets to be the the mother of all God's people in the Old Covenant. And Peter, very much Jewish in all of his writing that we've been seeing, as we saw last week, speaking specifically to the curse, 
of the tree, not naming it the cross, but calling it the tree, takes this Old Testament picture of what it looks like to be part of the covenant and brings it into the new. And he says, now we can become sons of Abraham before, right? But you ladies specifically can be what? Daughters of Sarah. Daughters of Sarah. If you share Abraham's faith, you can be sons of Abraham. And so also now women become daughters of Sarah if they share her submission. What a privilege and what a legacy for Sarah. And one day you will get to call her mom. And so in the old covenant, we know that we are all under Abraham and now we are all in Christ and we get to share with him. And so ladies, let me encourage you. This is the way. This is the way. I'm going to let Matt beat up the rest of us next week. But there's incredible things in verse 7 for you ladies again too that I really wanted to steal, but I'm not because then it would not leave him very much. He only has one verse. There's incredible things. You're joint heirs with us in Christ. You're called to so much. And the lie of the garden is that you have to get it all on your own. The lie of the garden says that you have to make all the decisions. The lie of the garden says that you can't trust. The lie of the garden says that you have to be God. Peter, God calls us to this type of relationship where there's safety, where there's trust, where there's flourishing, where there's life. All through meekness, gentleness, quietness, and submission. And so what's the goal? What's the purpose of all this? For you, life. For your unbelieving husband, life. For your believing husband, life. And what does that bring to us? Flourishing, everlasting, holy joy. So I want to end with this reminder for us that marriage is not mainly about staying in love. It's not. It's about covenant keeping. It's about covenant keeping, the covenant of your marriage. The main reason it's about covenant keeping is because God designed the relationship between a husband and his wife to represent the relationship between Christ and the church. This is the deepest meaning of marriage, and that's why it is ultimately these roles of headship and submission are so important. If our marriages are going to tell the truth about Christ and his church, we cannot be indifferent to the meaning of headship and submission. And so let it not go without saying that God's purpose is for the church and for the Christian wife who represents it is her everlasting holy joy. Christ died for you to bring that about. So much more that I could say on all this. What to call us to joy. Submission is many things, but it is first joy. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we thank you so much for your design, for your goodness. Father, that you would orchestrate such a mysterious and mighty thing so as to join two people together in such a way that it pictures the church. Father, let us not weaken this by trying to run from something that's uncomfortable and, and change the meaning. Let us instead live lives that are obedient to you 
that show the joy and flourishing of what it means to be married. What it means to be joined to your son in the church. Father, of all the ills in our culture, we see so many that are affected by the family. So, Father, I pray for us as a church that we would be drawn into our marriages, that we would be drawn in to care for one another, that we would be drawn into safety and comfort and flourishing within this beautiful picture that you've created. And as we do, we will live convincing lives. Lives that will, will lead to the redemption of others and lead to their flourishing and lead to their joy. And Father, as we live lives of repentance and faith, we show repeatedly that we don't have to chase the things of the world. We don't have to chase the fruit of the tree. We don't have to chase uh, these accolades and, and this strength and, and these, these false things that want to change who we are and our character. But we can chase you we can let you be our strength we can let you be our refuge we can let you be our comfort we can let you be our joy Father as long as we chase the things of this world we will be incomplete people because you've called us to simply rest in your son Father we love you and we pray these things in Jesus name Amen